Hi, it's Fraser here with a hugely exciting announcement. The fearless Julia Hartley Brewer will be joining Brendan O'Neill for a special live recording of The Brendan O'Neill Show on Wednesday, the 22nd of September. Julia and Brendan will be live on Zoom talking about lockdown authoritarianism, woke extremism and the myriad ways in which the world has gone mad. You don't want to miss this. Spiked supporters can get in for free. If you're a Spiked supporter, you can claim your ticket now from the Spiked Supporters Hub. If you're not yet a Spiked supporter, then sign up today and you'll get free access to this event, plus a whole load of other exciting perks. Tickets will go on general sale next week if there's any spaces remaining, but Spiked supporters get first dibs. So become a Spiked supporter now to get your ticket before it's gone. Just go to spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. That's spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. Now on with the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me as ever, we have Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, 20 years on from 9-11, the rows over social care, the cancellation of Mark Bowler and the We Spa controversy. So 9-11 this Saturday will be the 20th anniversary. This was the worst terror attack ever to hit American soil. I think it's fair to say that it's shaped politics, foreign policy, and even our everyday lives in quite radical ways. I mean, Tom, looking back on this horror, what has struck you about it? Well, this week I've been quite struck by how kind of damp the atmosphere is around the anniversary. Now, it's hard to gauge completely as far as we're not in America. Obviously, we're recording this today before the actual anniversary and all the rest of it. But at the same time, I think there's a level of confusion, exhaustion. You can understand that on one level because of the fact that the military response to 9-11 not only was such a disaster, but it mm. obviously ended in humiliation with perfect timing up until the you know, at the point of the 20th anniversary. I mean, the Taliban basically forming a government as we're marking this anniversary. So there's that part of it. But I also think our kind of intellectual response to it, if you like, has been so strikingly bad. And it was bad right from the beginning. I wrote yeah. a piece about this on Spike this week about some of the initial responses from the kind of intellectual set, which reflected a really deep sense of Western self-loathing. It's easy to kind of forget this now because I don't think a lot of these people would get away with making these kinds of comments now. But the responses, particularly from a lot of the kind of British left intelligentsia, was some version of maybe America deserved it. Maybe they had it coming. Even if they didn't deserve it, this was the inevitable consequence of US foreign policy, of US imperialism. Two days after 9-11, Seamus Milne in The Guardian wrote an article with the headline, they don't understand why they're hated or something to that mm. effect. He talks about America, if it if it turns out to be true that bin Laden's group is behind this, then they are reaping a dragon's tooth harvest or something like this. You know, They're having visited upon them what they visited upon all these different nations and actually talking quite directly to Americans saying you wish that hopefully some of them can begin to understand this. So incredibly remarkable comments to make in the wake of that. You even saw uh, Mary Beard in the um, London Review of Books about a month after 9-11 thinking out loud and trying to sum up what she saw as the prevailing mood, but saying word for word, a lot of people were thinking maybe America had it coming. Mm. I mean, again, she later clarified her views, which saying, of course, they didn't deserve it. But again, this is, you've got to make the connection. And I think that's really striking. Now, it's none of this to say is, of course, that, you know, American foreign policy, American imperialism is a fantastic thing, nor to say that later on the war on terror didn't play a direct role in creating the space for jihadist movements to develop and to thrive. But that's a very different thing from saying why 
people would choose to engage in the kind of industrial scale barbarism of the kind that we saw on 9-11. It misunderstands the nature of the terrorist threat, mm-hmm. which was, wasn't really linked to kind of national grievances. It was often kind of a lot of quite well-to-do jihadists who would latch on to foreign conflicts that they had nothing to do with as a justification for their own nihilism, effectively. And so I think it just, it's quite striking that whilst our kind of military response to it has kind of been exhausted, there's also a kind of sense in which our intellectual response to it was so wanting because there was this underlying sense that the West, maybe the West deserved it. And I think if a nation kind of deep down thinks it deserves to be attacked, it can't really defend itself. I mean, particularly against the kind of homegrown nature of the threat, which is what we've been dealing with a lot more in the past recent years. So I think that's part of why the response to this is so damp because there was still, there was that inability even then to cohere a sense that there was something here that was worth defending, I guess. Yeah. And I think, you know, there was um, a quite a, what felt like a strong response at the time from the um, American right, from, you know, George Bush. Um, there was a lot of kind of flag waving patriotism, but that seems quite thin now looking back. It seems almost a little bit fake, a little bit overdone. And it certainly um, hasn't lasted for 20 years. You know, it would be, it, it, it seems almost insane now. You cannot imagine, um, you know, say the firefighters um, listening to George W. Bush chanting USA, USA anymore. That just can't see that happening in, in a place like New York because we have, you know, that's that sense of national togetherness just doesn't exist. Yeah, but the, one of the points that Frank Frazee makes is that at the same time as all that flag waving was happening, George Bush also uh, countered it by categorising America as no longer America the brave, but America the vulnerable was the yeah. phrase he used. And the point that Frank makes is that while everyone talks about 9-11 as being the point in which everything changed, and of course everything, you know, monumental things did change, as you've mentioned, in terms of international policy, in terms of the war on terror, in terms of the way that politics worked domestically, but also the thing that changed was this uh, in this sense of an inability to change anything. So the framing of America and Americans as perpetually vulnerable and as in a constant state of terror or threat, which has lasted throughout the 20 years. And, and that's the way we talk about terrorism in the UK at the moment. We're at a constant level of threat um, means actually that nothing can change and that there there is a real kind of fatalistic sense at which citizens are living in a kind of perpetual state of, of stasis, that nothing really changes in relation to the war on terror is never won. I mean, we mm. know that now on the 20th anniversary, it's um, sickening timing that the exit from Afghanistan has kind of proven the extent to which nothing has changed um, for the international relations in that sense. But also, I mean, on the flip side of this, and the reason why it's confusing, is that actually materially things have changed because the terror threat has worsened. Yeah. And there was an interview on Radio 4 this morning with an MI, someone from MI5 who was talking about the fact that while um, the bo- the kind of uh, plane crashes and the bombings and, you know, including the London bombings that took place in the early 2000s were planned and were part of a kind of uh, relatively coherent, you know, kind of school of thought, and there was um, networks behind it. What you have in an Islamist threat is uh, some some average Joe stepping off the street with a kitchen knife and uh, killing people in the name of ISIS. And so it's a very different and much more prevalent threat 
today. And so balancing that is a, is part of the confusion of our modern age and also part of the lack in terms of Western political elites that they, more importantly, that they haven't got a handle on the practical elements of how to defeat terrorist threat. They also have, as Thomas mentioned, a complete dearth of intellectual ability to be able to talk to their citizens and their societies and their publics and say, this is what we face. The way to combat it is not just through military intelligence and, and technology, but through a political sense of us knowing what we stand for and standing against those who want to defeat Western values, in the, whether they be Al-Qaeda, ISIS, whatever uh, form they mm. take. But there's an element of feeding it as well, I yeah. think, because one of the things I think really demonstrates that self-loathing is at the core of the inability to talk about this, is the way it shifted from being a kind of... Um, discussion about foreign policy to discussion of domestic um, politics, especially as the you saw the rise of the kind of more homegrown attacks, even if they were inspired or informed somewhat by ideology from abroad. You know, people who were born and raised in this country deciding to butcher their own citizens. Suddenly the discussion would often become, often in a kind of nudge and winks way, about a question of social exclusion, about a question of Islamophobia. But again, the kind of root of it is that we're a rotten kind of country mm. or we're a rotten sort of society and that we're in some way, shape or form kind of inviting these kinds of attacks. I think it was a remarkable article in the wake of the Woolwich attack, which seemed to kind of do both of these two things in The Guardian, which was talking about not only is this the result of the warmongers, um, but this is also the result of the kind of, therefore, the kind of exclusion and singling out of Muslims that happens domestically as a result of all of this stuff. And what you were talking about there was two Muslim converts from South London yeah. butchering one of their fellow citizens, you know, dressing it up as revenge for the murder of Muslims in Iraq and Afghanistan and whatever. But it was quite clear that there was something else going on here. And yet the response to it is almost to say that they've got a point. And I think what's really striking, if you look at, say, the Manchester Arena attack and the reporting about his family and the, some of the quotes his sister gave to the papers and all the rest of it, is that he had also internalised some of these kinds of ideas, or at the very least he already had them, and they were apparently shared amongst a certain level of the intellectual set that Britain is an Islamophobic country, he had this kind of pronounced sense of grievance. Him and a few of his schoolmates even accused one of their teachers of being an Islamophobe at one point. And so there's also an element into which it's actually kind of mirroring some of the kind of, you know, faux grievances of these new Islamist movements, as well as not knowing how to challenge it. You know, they're kind of implicitly saying, maybe you've got a point in some ways as well. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, like, our, the lack of kind of intellectual robustness, the lack of um, our inability to push back against these ideas actually goes hand in hand with, you know, almost a, a more... Uh, smothering kind of security response. So in America, you, of course, you famously have the kind of Patriot Act, which increases surveillance, you know, enormously. In Britain, we have this kind of prevent program, which is, you know, in, in many ways has, a, has quite a sinister impact on, on freedom of speech. And there is this general pervasive threat, generally, not just with terrorism. There's a, sen a pervasive sense that we're insecure and we need more kind of state control to you know protect us essentially that seems to be the job of western governments now not to make life better but to protect us from these various threats that could come from anywhere and we see that in in covid many people have, have said quite rightly i think that we wouldn't have had this response to covid without 9-11 this sense that the you know the ultimate aim of of governments is to simply stop people from dying to protect them from these kind of um you know various threats rather than having a kind of coherent, you know, thinking, 
forward together response. For example, the prevent policy, people want it to be expanded to right-wing terrorism, to incels, to you know, anyone mm. who's a little bit nasty should be put through the prevent program. And it kind of, the expansion of these measures means that actually you never have a proper discussion or focus on where the threat really is. I mean, there's also the domestic conversation among political commentators about terrorist threat it tends to be really resistant, as Thomas mentioned, to being specific about what happens in certain contexts. You know, what, who was it that, that uh, committed the Manchester attack? What was his background? What did he believe in? It's, there's a real kind of childishness about um, being able to trust publics with having a conversation about the specifics. It doesn't, there is, you know, you can be at the same time reject the idea that all Muslims are, are terrorists in that very Islamophobic and prejudiced way and still have a conversation about Islamist terror. I mean, feminists all the time go on about the fact that we have to talk about incels as a male problem, but they don't have any problem there with it mm. being expanded out. So there's a hypocrisy to it. But there's also, as you mentioned, Fraser, this sort of sense of uh, all the solutions to these problems have to come from legal, either legal remits or um, an expansion of the sense of vulnerability in a society. There's no, you know, there there is two levels to this. There's obviously the practical level of stopping people from plotting in their garages to commit terrorist attacks, which obviously you and I and Tom can't do, and they have professionals to do that. But in the political realm, there is a, a sense of a need for citizens to take part in and active discussion about what it is we believe in and also what it is that we abhor of mm-hmm. calling out things that we uh, think are wrong and stating why they're wrong. We know that ISIS likes to profit off of the fact that Westerners don't have a clue what they believe in, don't aren't brave enough to call them out and they relish in this. And what message that sends to homegrown, um, ra- you know, radicalised people who are in Britain, who have, a lot of the attacks recently have been committed by, is go ahead. You know, we don't have anything to... Um, combat you with. In fact, you probably won't even get slated to the yeah. extent to which you deserve. I mean, there's there's a profound nervousness about even calling it Islamism. Mm. That's not overstated. I remember years ago, it must have been the 2017 election, you know, Paul Nuttall in the leaders debate, he was a former UKIP leader, started talking about Islamist terrorism and everyone else on the um, panel just turned on him, mm. even though he used the word Islamist. In the wake of the Manchester Arena attack, Lucy Powell, who's a Manchester Labour MP, was on, must have been Daily Politics with Andrew Neil, and he started talking about the Islamist threat. And she would just say, I don't think we should use that kind of divisive language. And you just think, if you can't name the threat, you definitely can't yeah. challenge it. And as Ada was saying, by not talking about Islamism and by acting as if to mention Islamism is to cause problems for Muslims, is to conflate the two. So it's yeah. a completely yeah. absurd sort of proposition. But I think that's something which is really striking because there's an element in which Islamist terror is depoliticized. So they kind of treat it as something which, well, it's about young people being disaffected. It's this kind of knock-on effect of foreign policy. What did we expect? And then an attempt to overly politicize just things like, you know, school shooting style incel violence, as we've we've seen visited in the UK recently. And then when you're talking about challenging this, it goes along with this de-radicalisation, this idea you can just put someone on a course and they won't believe in this stuff. There's this kind of asymmetry because they really believe it. Yeah. It's nuts. I mean, ISIS wanted to provoke a conflict with the West that would bring about the apocalypse, but they really believe in this stuff. And yet not only do we not take them at their word, we don't believe in ourselves either. And I think that's definitely part of the story of the past 20 years. Whether you work for yourself or you're part of a team, you need a standout online presence. If you want to make the best impression, you've got to try Issue. 
Issue is the all-in-one platform that lets you create and distribute beautiful digital content from marketing materials to magazines to flipbooks, brochures, and more. One of the best things about Issue is that when you're finished making your masterpiece, it's so easy to share across a range of platforms and formats. Issue features your creative work in an easy-to-view way on every device. You only have to make your work once, and then you can distribute it everywhere without endless reformatting or resizing or worrying if it's going to be bent out of shape. Your content is already optimized for engagement and is ready to share. Issue also works seamlessly with other creative tools you already use, like Canva, Dropbox, and InDesign. Issue helps creators, marketers, designers, and really anyone who wants to make content that stands out. You can start using Issue for free, but to really make the most of Issue, you should check out their premium features that give you a more customized experience. So get started with Issue today for free, or if you sign up for a premium account, you can get 50% off with our special code. Go now to issue.com slash podcast and use the promo code SPIKED. That's I-S-S-U-U dot com slash podcast and use the promo code SPIKED at the checkout for either a free account or for 50% off a premium account. That's issue.com slash podcast with the promo code SPIKED. So this week, there's been an enormous row over how to pay for social care. The government has effectively raised national insurance to cover it. A lot of Tory MPs threatened to rebel. In the end, only five uh, voted against the proposals. But there's been a kind of a lot of sound and fury, not just because of the tax itself, because it might be regressive, but because um, many, you know, particularly on the Tory right, feel that it's changing the nature of uh, of their party, that it's taking them in a direction that they don't want to go. Tom, what have been you, your thoughts been? I just wonder if they've been asleep for the past five years, just on the question of the, ne- the changing nature of the Tory party. I mean, first of all, there's these ridiculous overheated statements like, you know, a hike in national insurance is socialism or something. I mean, it's obviously not. You can disagree with it, but it's not. <laughs> this isn't some sort of uh, far left takeover. But also just that there's no recognition of how British politics has changed since Brexit. You know, um, the working class towns that put Brexit over the line are not full of Thatcherite ideologues. Um, that has become in large part the new base of the Tory party as a result of the elections which have taken place since then. And the Tory party has quite savvily had to respond to that um, in a quite incomplete way, often in a quite kind of sloganistic way. But it's recognised that it does have to drop his old orthodoxies to a certain extent. So all of the sound and fury, I think, is a fundamental misunderstanding of that fundamental shift. And it's interesting because you get it from within the Tory party, of course, but you also get it from without with the Labour party. I mean, Keir Starmer's primary attack line, um, or at least one of them in recent days, was to say that how can the Tory party call itself the party of low taxes? You know, devastating sort of point for a Labour leader to make. Really, really strange. So he doesn't really know what he's up against either. I mean, there's obviously, there's obviously problems with the social care policy. The way in which it's being raised is regressive. There's open questions because for the first few years, most of it is going to go to the NHS for the backlog. Mm-hmm. Will that money ever end up in social care? Obviously, it introduces this cap, but it, it's not necessarily going to improve care. It's not necessarily going to expand the reach of care. All of these points are very well made, but we've got to put these things in 
perspective. And I think just both sides, really, just seem incapable of recognising what shifts have taken place since Brexit, definitely. Definitely. Ella, I mean, a lot of the discussion around social care, particularly those objecting to the plans, seems to almost imply that, well, why are we paying for this? Especially younger people, um, you know, why are, we, why are we being faced with the tax bill? Why are working people paying for all these kind of rich pensioners? I mean, what have you made of that kind of response? There has been a really ugly, um, I mean, it's, it's an expression of the extent to which the generational debate has become ugly. Um, I mean, as Tom's already mentioned, you know, the fact that this is being taxed by national insurance would raise issues about the um, different ways in which people with different levels of wealth get taxed disproportionately. That's definitely something that's a problem. Uh, and we can talk about that. But rather than it being framed as a poor people, rich people thing, mm. it's being framed as a young people, old people thing in this really infuriatingly crass means of sort of... And the, but the assumption, the assumption is that all old people are rich as well. Yeah, that's, it's like, that's what I've seen. It's, it's this strange. crass understanding <laughs> that all old people are sat in three-bedroom, two-storey mansions with the heating whacked up, you know, smoking a cigar, thinking, ha, 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 why don't I screw over my grandkids some more? And they only uh, paid £100 for it in it, yeah, the 70s. Yeah, and it's a really... But, you know, you'd think, actually, it really makes me angry because you think that over the last 18 months of seeing the way in which so many old people have been treated so badly by not just uh, and, and continue to be treated so badly in care homes by lockdown policies that have no end in sight by the sacrificing on behalf of politicians of elderly people at the you know to kind of uh, you know putting covid positive patients back into care homes all the stuff that's happened the plight of loneliness the plight of people with dementia all this stuff and you think that people would be able young people would have a little bit of humility of understanding that if we've all come slightly closer to death in the last 18 months or thinking about death that you'd have some perspective of understanding that the care of the elderly and social care which also includes people with learning disabilities and it's not just yeah. OAPs in homes um, is something that you should be invested in as a citizen part of a collective. It's actually really disgusting mm. that watching some political commentators, who I won't name, going on about how unfair it is that their taxes are going to get hiked for these rich grannies. I mean, but then on the, uh, you know, it has to also be said on the flip side, this is such small fry. And you yeah. pointed to this in your um, column this week, Fraser, and that, okay, it's a relative lot of money and people are wincing about the fact that taxes are going to get um, raised. But when it comes to social care, having a little bit of money injected is going to do a fuck all yeah. for uh, the, the vast number of care homes who are understaffed, for the um, crisis in terms of a, a risk of understaffing because of the rollout of um, vaccine passports being mandatory and, and what effect that's going to have on staffing levels, on the fact that the way in which we care for people is still so um, backwards. It's all about, you know, how much time you have to wipe someone's ass and feed someone and no time to talk about people's quality of life, yeah. what access to resources they have in terms of talking to people, visiting hours, all this kind of stuff. So this isn't just a money question. This is also a, a fundamental question of how we look after people in our society, that this fuss over the social care policy is just not answering. I mean, you see a reflection of that kind of granny bashing in the fact that people talk about the pandemic as if it's had its worst impacts on young people. Yeah. I have some sympathy with that, obviously, in relation to I think the lockdown has mm. had the worst impact on young people. But old people have died in their tens yeah. of thousands. I mean, this is something which just doesn't seem to be talked about. A third of the deaths are in care homes yeah. uh, where it ripped through these places because they weren't properly protected. So it, it just, again, the kind of generation wars have just made people completely blind 
to the lot of a lot of pensioners. Now, it is true that, what was it, about like a quarter of um, pensioners are now millionaires on the basis of their assets because of how inflated the housing market's been and all the rest of it. Um, but at the same time, there was a report out in 2018 which said that in terms of pensioner poverty, um, the UK seemed some of the biggest rises since the 80s in Western Europe. Mm. I mean, these two things can be true at the same time. And when the whole reason that we're talking about social care, as you put it in your piece phrase, is because was it AGK reckons about a million and a half people who are not getting the care that they need. Um, the quality of the care is really low. Uh, I think that the amount that care workers are paid shows yeah. you how little we care about this issue. A lot of them are on minimum wage, about a quarter of them are on zero hours contracts. You know, we're constantly talking about the shortfall and concerns about mandatory vaccinations affecting this. It's because it's such an undervalued sector in the midst of all of this. So, you know, this is the problem. Some of the critiques of the particular policy are fair enough, but at the same time, undergirding it is this bizarre idea, as you say, that pensioners are living it up. Mm. It's precisely because they're not that this is such a problem in the first place for a lot of them, you know. And it's, you know, it's strange. I mean, you think that most people accept that we live in a, in a welfare state and that means um, subsidising, you know, the risks to other people's lives. Subsidize, you know, the risk that someone might lose their job means we pay for their unemployment. But with... Elderly care, like that could literally be you mm. more than any other type of social insurance. It's, it's quite likely that it could be you. And yet people still have this real difficulty making a connection between them paying and a service coming out on the other end, let alone, you know, the changes that we need to make it actually a good service that people, you know, the kind that people deserve. I think it poses an uncomfortable fact or question to the way in which society has, has changed because obviously in previous generations and it came with a lot of cons you would have uh elderly members of a family living with a family and mm. you know until their death that you would have uh i know you know in my irish family granny sat in the corner of the room until she died i mean and was part of the family and helped raise grandkids and all of that yes that put a lot of extra burden on women in particular yes it came with a lot of restrictions for family life but there were a lot of pros to it in terms of intergenerational relationships and the fact that old people weren't separate living in homes, which so many of them, I worked in one for years, um, so many of them just kind of sit and rot in homes until they die without, you know, one contact from family visit, you know, a week. And that that kind of sectioning off of, of a section of society, which still has, it has to be said, even though it sounds cliche, so much still to give in terms of wisdom and skills and benefits for society is, is a problem. And no, I'm not saying that people should, should be forced to look after their um, mums and dads, even when it's very difficult. And of course, social care is provided because once you get to a certain age, there are practical realities that mean that lots of people can't be looked after at home and need to have nursing care. But there has been little talk about the way in which we morally value old people as well as practically pay for their care. And I think that's the deficit really, because we so many young people now see their grannies or elderly people in their lives as just like people from a different planet. Mm. And that's where the disconnect is coming in. And that's where a lot of the nastiness comes from, I think. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spiked supporter, you can get a 15% discount on anything. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spikes-online.com forward slash shop. 
So let's talk a bit more about young people in this section. Um, the FA has charged the Middlesbrough defender Mark Bowler for tweets he made, offensive tweets, when he was just 14 years old. Tom, we don't even know what these tweets were, do we? Yeah, it, that's one of the weird parts of this, is that um, we've seen this story time and time again. Someone basically starts digging through um, a sportsman's former social media history and often what would happen is people try and make that go viral and then mm. it causes the outrage but in this case and there's been a few other cases like it as well it seems like basically it was just kind of sent to the FA um, Mark Bowler managed to delete it before word of the investigation got out so it gives it a slightly more kind of Kafkaesque aspect to it it's kind of like you know <laughs> So media shaming, but you're kind of left to guess what it is that they're actually being ashamed for. I mean, we gather that it was some sort of homophobic remark because they said it yeah. was, you know, related to sexual orientation. Um, what's there's a, there's a lot that's really striking about it. One of which is that this isn't the only case. This is the one that's kind of broken through, but there's yeah. been at least three that I've seen in the last couple of months. So it's all in relation to football as all well. All in relation to football. So this is all the FA. So Johnson, Clark, Harris, who's a Peterborough player, last month basically got charged with exactly the same thing. Um, there was also back in March, I think, um, a West Ham player called Jared Bowen who um, tweeted something when he was 15 years old, so a bit older than Mark Bowler was when he made <laughs> his comments, but nevertheless, um, you know, they couldn't legally ride a moped, but apparently they're being held accountable for these comments, uh, which it was a kind of crass joke that involved the N-word. I mean, it's worth, I don't really want to repeat it, but it's worth saying that the butt of the joke was seemingly a white friend, but nevertheless, a bit insensitive, but he was 15 years old. Mm. And it's just really interesting that in this council culture of ours it feels like first of all there's no statute of limitations the second of all there's no age limit to yeah. what it is that people are going to be punished for i mean if you could be punished for something you said when you were 14 nine years old seven years old mm. I mean, we talked recently about how babies can be racist now yeah. apparently so if they could tweet that would probably be a problem <laughs> as well um but the, what's so interesting about this is that i feel like we're kind of entering a bit of a new phase of council culture at least this is a different dimension to cancel culture is that we often think about that as basically a group of tweeters, commentators who form a mob and go after someone they dislike and bring them down by wrenching their comments out of context or whatever. What we have here is just one individual or a handful of individuals who maybe because they support the other team or because mm. they're just bored or because they're just dickheads decide to make a complaint about someone. And then the instant institutional response is just to throw that person under the bus for terror of being associated with the alleged bigotry of a 14 year old yeah. nine years ago. It's nuts, but it does speak to, I think, something that we've often made this point, but it's worth making again, is that the power that, if we want to call this cancel culture, has is less the strength and determination of the councillors, although that's obviously a big part of it. It's the cowardice of the institutions that they target. Yeah. So much so that in this case, one snitching email, it seems like, is enough for them to bring someone down for something that really deep down they all know probably isn't really a big mm. deal. And they also make a public spectacle of it as well. There was a good point in, in a piece in The Telegraph which said in relation to things like doping allegations or in the, under their doping regulations, if someone's caught say, using recreational drugs. They can deal with that privately, but yeah. this has to be press released. This has to be the spectacle. We're dealing with homophobia, racism, exactly. We're fighting this whilst we get ready for the World Cup in Qatar. Yeah. All this stuff. So um, it's just, it, it, it is ridiculous, but I think it just shows that, that particular dimension to it, I guess. And, and just in terms of the kind of discussion around forgiveness, I mean, a lot of people have said wokeness is a religion, but without forgiveness. Um, and it's bad enough, right, not being able to forgive adults for, you know, sins, for tweeting something misjudged. But we can't even forgive children. Yeah. I mean, the question is, what kind of person is Mark Bowler now? I mean, and his team should know that. And if his, and anyway, what he, the view, you could make the argument on the face of it, that what he thinks 
on a political or religious or moral level is sort of by the by what really matters as a football player is whether or not he can kick the ball and whether or not he's physically good at his sport. But if you, okay, if you do think there's a responsibility for teams to be involved in the, you know, the, the ethics and the morals of their players, then what kind of person is he now? I mean, the difference between a me at 14 mm. and me at 20 was vast. Everyone knows that. It's, people kind of talk about it ad nauseum. Of course, people change uh, between their teenage years and their adult years. And so there's there's so much discussion about the way in which footballers should be supported by their teams. I mean, we know that the the squad for the um, Euros proved that, and their relationship with Gareth Southgate proved that there is this new phase of football where people are supported. And we've seen Marcus Rashford or Sterling or all of these people who have faced racist abuse being supported by their teams and personally go on a journey as well as physically and professionally with those institutions. But it seems with Mark Buller that has completely, you know, it's it's dissipated. Where is the support for him to say, okay, you said these things, we're going to back you because we, we're we your teammates. Yeah. We, mm. you know, or we, we're your manager. We support you. We're going to defend you against these people who want to bring you down. It just gets thrown under the bus. It's, it sends a terrible message for mm. young players, particularly so many of them who are going to have grown up on Twitter. I mean, we're of a generation when we didn't, thankfully. We were just a bit too old, I think, to, to or maybe, <laughs> I don't know, no one goes searching through my Twitter. But, <laughs> but but there are people now who are 20, 21, 22, who will have had unguarded access to Twitter and God knows what they've said yeah, on it. Yeah. And the, the onus is on the adults in the room to say, we don't care because we know who you are in the here and now. And, the, you know, we've said this before on the podcast in relation to Jared Amira and all people who are from the Labour Party and people who have been dragged through the for things they've said when they were younger but it also has a damning effect on our understanding of redemption because if if there if we don't believe that people can change in the space of six years from a child to an adult then what is yeah. the point of putting people in prison what's the point of doing anything mm. in search of redemption in society if Just we don't believe in it yeah. it's, it's yeah. all we'll do. but they're directly incentivizing these kinds of things as well yeah. i mean like it was interesting i think in the in the case of johnson clark harris the peterborough player at one point i can't remember if it was one of the coaches or the manager came out and his in, initial statement was like this is crazy you know what i mean we just won promotion and it's obviously someone just trying to dig up tweets out to get him um but you don't see that response anywhere else everyone has to, has to kind of engage in this dance as if to pretend this is of course very serious we yeah. must do this we must do that you're talking about idiotic comments made by teenage boys right who are idiots often by definition and what's also interesting is that you know there's often this discussion about you know this is about accountability and all the rest of it given the age um given the amount of time that's passed first of all but also given the fact that a lot of these comments are basically just um, we don't know in the Mark Bowler case, but say something like the Ollie um, Robinson case, were basically un-PC jokes, really. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, you, we could talk about how distasteful they were and all the rest of it, but they were un-PC jokes. These aren't things that he genuinely believed. You know, it was not like they found out that he was a member of some sort of far-right militia when he was a young man or something like this. And yet um, there's still no recognition of that nuance, I guess. But then there's also the fact that in all of these cases, uh, the apology is instantly forthcoming and heartfelt yeah. and sincere because not only do they not believe these things now they often probably didn't believe them in the first place they were just dicking about you know but again there's just not room for that and again i'm just always again struck by the fact that you know this isn't owen jones running around telling these people that these players have to be gone by the end of the day they're purging themselves yeah, yeah. these clubs off the back of complaints from probably fans from another side who are just trying to troll the team they dislike, really. But, the you know, the response to it is just so remarkable. Uh, and finally, we should touch on the Weespar controversy. Now, this has been a kind of growing controversy um, from several months ago. 
a woman encountered um, someone in the women's section of a spa who had a penis allegedly flashing said penis. She complained to the front desk of the spa and a video of the complaint went viral and that sparked a number of protests outside the spa. And now Judith Butler, one of the um, most prominent gender theorists, has somehow got entangled into this row. Ella, do you want to explain a bit about that aspect? Entangled <laughs> is the right word because this is one hell of a confusing and complicated situation, but sort of trying to capture it in a nutshell. What's happened is that there's an ongoing case, as you've explained, in We Spa. Um, and there was an interview published by, by, led by the queer historian Julian Gleason, who interviewed Judith Butler about a range of things, gender trouble, her book and lots of other things. And one of the questions, um, Gleason said, I want to talk about the furore around the We Spa controversy. And, uh, do you think that feminists are getting caught up in far right movements? And, and is there a problem there? <laughs> Judith Butler then answered as Judith Butler would by diving into the deep end and calling gender critical feminists fascists, talking about the neo-fascist far-right alliance between gender critical feminists and the Proud Boys and saying a whole load of mad shit basically about how anyone who, you know, thinks that there is a distinction in sex and that it might be a problem that a, a trans woman allegedly might have exposed at her penis to women in a place where there's uh, sex distinctions in a spa is you are just total bigot if you think that and blah 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 Judith Butler did what Judith Butler does mm. right everyone knows that she's remarkably lucid actually uh, yeah. <laughs> I only encountered her in prose it's, um, in, yeah. in the answer she said oh I know that we're meant to be kind of populist about this but actually I think that we should we should have intellectual inquiry so explaining away her own a kind of intellectual masturbation that she usually does, basically. Um, the Guardian then removed this question and answer. Now, the reason the Guardian says that they did that was because of the use of the word furore and that the word furore was controversial because it was an ongoing legal case. And that just doesn't add up. The mm. reason why they removed it was probably because there was an understandable backlash to gender critical feminists being called fascists. And the Guardian really has revealed itself to not have any balls in defending its own uh, freedom of the press to publish something that everyone knows already that Judith Butler doesn't like gender critical feminists. The upshot of this is it reveals the way in which the tangled nature of the gender debate often ends up in not trusting people to, on both sides, to have an open discussion about this, which is you know, the Guardian is saying that it's misleading, in danger of misreading its readers by p using the word furore. It's pissed off Gleason. It's pissed off Butler. It's pissed off everyone that wanted to read that article in the full. People should know what Butler says about these mm. things. She is the architect of modern identity politics in many way, in many ways. And gender critical feminists who, you know, complained, wrote into the readers complaint section, which Gle Gleason quoted asking for it to be pulled down, should be ashamed of themselves because that's censorship and we should know about these things. But also the, there has to be said that the use of the word furore by Gleason and the kind of flippant way in which her, both her and Butler were talking about the We Spa incident as if it's just like a fuss that gender critical feminists are making up with and that they're all sort of right wing shows how, how unwilling they are to engage in debate. I mean, it was, it's a funny thing, actually, this case, an uncomfortable funny thing about it is that both the uh, sort of trans activist side of this are saying that it's up in the air whether or not this individual who allegedly ha committed indecent exposure, who has a history of committing indecent exposure, it has to be said, um, is a trans woman or not. And obviously gender critical feminists are saying it's not a trans woman, it's a man. So 
what to make of this, who knows, but it shows how toxic and unpleasant the discussion about gender wars has become. I think The Guardian, but the, the liberal media in particular, should be completely ashamed by how they've handled this yeah. wee spa story. I mean, you know, there's a, we, we should be careful to say alleged, obviously, this is still an ongoing investigation. But essentially what happened was that you have a, a woman, a black woman, as happens. I don't want to racialise it, but I think it's interesting in terms of the intersectional nature mm. of the, these discussions. Uh, complains that there is someone in possession of a penis walking around and flaunting it in front of women and girls and the instant response is to disbelieve them yeah. which is very very striking not only disbelieve them but basically suggest that it wasn't corroborated it could have been a hoax mm. is this person a reliable witness you know believe it, the victim and all that stuff seems it to go goes completely against I believe women or all those yeah. other trends that are so huge in America this is exactly it and also you know Brendan put it in a um, quite provocative way a while ago but I think he's been vindicated it's like they would rather defend Flash's rights over this woman yeah. who was concerned, quite understandably, about the presence of penis in we're laughing, but it's ridiculous and you know it's absurd. But that, but that's where we're at at the moment. That the hierarchy of victimhood, the hierarchy of people that you understand, is such that the person waving around what is reportedly a semi-tumescent penis mm. is the person that you have to rally around the defence of, yeah. ignore or downplay the other forms of response. It just shows what a a muddle doesn't really do it justice but it just shows what position they've got themselves into and again just another example which isn't limited to the gender critical issue there's other examples of it as well of basically just the culture war and what these journalists feel their position in it is overcoming even their responsibility to support the truth yeah and give the other side a fair hearing that's really really striking thank you for listening to the spike podcast we're back every friday and you can now watch us on video too Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.